All right, Ben, Mike, I don't think we're going to begin this podcast with any kind of presentation or slideshow, but we do have a lot to talk about as far as the Vikings GM and coaching searches, some of the more of the fallout from Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman's tenure, um, and as well as talk about the playoffs, mailbag, we've got a lot to get to. So I want to start, though, Ben, with something you learned since we last spoke about how Mike Zimmer's tenure ended in one of his last team meetings. So please... With that quip about the presentation and slideshow, please tell me what exactly did Mike Zimmer do uh, at the end there? Probably in like December or was it January? Yeah, well, um, after after one of those last couple losses of the season um, to the to the Rams and the Packers, as I understand it, uh, started was in a, a part of a Wednesday meeting. Uh, kind of just went through all of the things that had happened to him in eight years coaching the Vikings, and, and you can go to the list. We've heard him talk about it, whether it's Adrian Peterson um, getting suspended, Teddy Bridgewater's knee, um, his own issues with his eye, obviously. I mean, different players getting injured, different um, you know things he's had to kind of deal with, the adversity he's had to overcome. Um, basically talked at length in a team meeting about a lot of those things to the point where players were almost like, we're not the ones that you're trying to convince to keep your job. So, but from what I would understand, players walked out of the meeting kind of just very confused and very um, almost taken aback that, that it happened. And it was kind of a sign. I think that he knew what was coming and, and that uh, it was, it was all over, but yeah, that, that moment, as I was uh, reporting out my, my story that ran in the paper on Sunday, kind of about, the Zimmer era and how it all ended um, that stuck out. I mean, that, that certainly was a pretty um, surprising thing to learn about. And I think for players that were part of it, it sounds like it was a fairly surprising thing as well. Yeah. Mike, what did you think of Zimmer's kind of exit interview almost it would seem because as far as we know, he didn't address the team that day and, and hadn't talked to the team since. Well, I mean, what seems particularly relevant about it to me and you know stands out as you know why he would do it is that he in fact in those eight years was the only head coach the Vikings were the only franchise that did have any adversity so you know I can see why you know he would list off all those things because certainly nobody else was able to overcome those things and achieve their goals like okay I'm obviously being facetious so you get it though like sure a lot of bad things happened to them especially the last couple of years injuries on defense but you know, those are ultimately in the NFL, especially like those are excuses. Like you, this is a results business. A lot of teams have overcome probably more than what the Vikings had thrown at them and still managed to achieve relatively high levels of success. So yeah, it's, it's odd. It does strike me as somebody who knew what was coming and was kind of engaging in one big last round of, it wasn't my fault um, kind of, blame shifting and not all the blame goes to him but um it, it certainly was an exercise it sounds like in some excuse making while the days are getting shorter the nights are getting brighter at the minnesota zoo welcome to the second annual nature illuminated presented by wings financial credit union this narrated drive-through experience will immerse you in an enchanting world of brilliant oversized displays of your favorite zoo creatures all illuminated in fantastical layers of light this one-of-a-kind experience is truly wild, only at the Minnesota Zoo, December 2nd through January 16th. Reserve your tickets at mnzoo.org. 
It does a little bit. And those who haven't seen it or read it, uh, check out Ben's story from Sunday, uh, kind of going through a lot of what we talked about in the last podcast, but a lot of uh, what he's learned since then and, and more obviously detail that we didn't get to or through that encompassed eight years of the Zimmer regime and kind of how it fell apart. But we won't spend too much longer on that, but we should get to at least one more detail. And Ben, I want to open up the floor to you. I mean, what, what else did you learn um, that we should talk about that we haven't yet? Um, in terms of just details. And then there was one from 2016 that yeah. I thought was pretty interesting as well. Yeah. And there were certainly things that, that we heard and, you know, that we've all heard through the course of covering Zimmer and in the course of the last eight years and things that I heard through reporting this out that just didn't make the story because it's, it's a newspaper and we still have length things to hit. But the, the thing you're referring to, of course, is the famous uh, Christmas Eve game at Lambeau Field in 2016 when Mike Zimmer went into that week with plans to have Xavier Rhodes shadow Jordy Nelson as he had been doing with a lot of receivers that year, but had never done with Jordy Nelson. They had never had one of their corners just follow Jordy Nelson across the field. And Zimmer had planned to do it that day. They did not start the game doing it. And after the game, Andrew, I think you were the one that asked him in the press conference, um, about shadowing Jordy Nelson and he goes, Zimmer says something to the effect of that was supposed to be the plan the whole time, but somebody decided they didn't want to do that. And then we all of course go into the locker room and, and uh, ask Xavier Rhodes about it. And I think captain Marlin was kind of pulled him aside ahead of time to kind of say, Hey, you know, almost the prisoner's dilemma thing. Let's get our story straight here. And Terrence Newman kind of uh, bolted for the doors, but uh, Rhodes after the game said, we all decided during the week that we weren't going to shadow Nelson. And it, so it was kind of this exercise of, okay, whose idea was it? Was it Rhodes? Was it Newman? Cause it was kind of those two that they were trying to decide how the, this, these were the two that it would affect the most, even though Jordy Nelson did a lot of his damage in the slot that day and probably ended up beating captain Marlin more than anybody. But what I heard this week is that it was actually Jerry Gray the defensive backs coach at the time, whose idea it was to not have them shadow because they had always played it that way. And that's what he wanted to do. That's what he thought was still the best approach. So there was this sort of dispute between him and Mike Zimmer about how this was all going to go. And the relationship between those two did not end very well. And, you know, I, I heard this week that when owners were, meeting with players. And, you know, one of the things that comes up about coaches that leave over the course of those conversations, Jerry Gray, and, and it sounds like a number of players were like, he was great. We really enjoyed working with him. And he, of course, now is uh, the Packers defensive backs coach, you know, working with Rasul Douglas, who's been one of the big uh, reclamation project stories of the NFL this year. They get Jair Alexander back, you know, fairly accomplished secondary, at least by the Packers, recent standards, which admittedly aren't <laughs> that hard to clear sometimes, but uh, he's the defensive backs coach now in Green Bay. And it sounded like was the guy in that game in Lambeau Field in 2016 that actually said, no, we're, we're going to go a different route from what Mike Zimmer wanted to do. And then players kind of get caught in the middle of the, the fight between mom and dad, I suppose. I don't know who's who in that situation, but um, yeah, it sounds like it's how it went down. That's crazy because that's insane that the Mike Zimmer had basically insubordination on his coaching staff, not among players where you would think that ego is a little more, I don't know, to me, it was more acceptable for uh, Terrence Newman, who was a vet at that point. And the story that was peddled 
behind the scenes at the time was that Terrence Newman told Xavier Rhodes to stay on his side. And then it was more of a spur of the moment thing. Uh, and that was the story. Everybody behind the scenes, well, not everybody, but some people behind the scenes were quick to confirm and say, yeah, no, that's what happened. When, when really what happened is the assistant coach, the defensive backs coach said, no, this is how we've always done it. This is how we're going to do it. And then eventually in that game, they did get what Mike Zimmer wanted, which was yeah. Xavier Rhodes following Jordy Nelson uh, in that game. Didn't matter. They lost, I believe, 38 to 25. I do find it interesting, too, that I read Xavier Rhodes recently on Twitter was asked about Mike Zimmer. And he said uh, it was great, you know, playing for Zimmer. But then he goes out of his way and says, but I give a lot of credit to Jerry Gray or I really like Jerry Gray as well. So yeah. players, players really like Jerry Gray. And that's not just Rhodes saying that. It's a lot of guys saying that. And I do wonder if, you know, whom they would credit when it comes to the development of some of those guys, because after he left, it's not like they started churning out defensive backs. Like, I think their talent kind of dropped off, uh, even though their investment continued in, obviously, for various reasons, whether through injuries to Hughes or the whole Jeff Gladney situation. Um, but in general, I thought that was a that was he, that was a really interesting detail about where that team was at at that point. Um, with Jerry Gray and Mike Zimmer, but they got it together clearly and had that 2017 season and had a pretty good run with that defense. Yeah, and I, I do think, you know, that they talked a lot about miscommunication after that, and I, I do think there was some element of that that involved signals getting crossed, and, and obviously they it was the first couple of series of that game that it became an issue. But, um, yeah, it sounded like Jerry Gray was a lot of the reason that that didn't go the way that Mike Zimmer wanted it to. It, it is just, it's sort of interesting in the sense that um, if that was indeed the source of it, um, the, the first sort of focus was put on the players, I guess. And, and, and maybe, you know, Zimmer said, I think after the game, someone decided they didn't want to do it that way. So I don't know that he said that the players did that. And maybe we just went to the players and asked about it because those are the first people we get to talk to. And maybe that was, you know, you don't get to typically talk to the position coaches after the game. So maybe even in our own reporting, we <laughs> put the focus on the wrong thing. Um, this this process ends up being a little sloppy sometimes when we're actually trying to figure out what the heck happened after a game. But yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to learn a little bit more about that kind of that fairly intriguing moment in recent Vikings history. And I remember going up to, I think it was, we went up to Captain Munderland in the locker room first, and that's when he backed up and, and told Xavier yep. next to him, yep. uh, they, hey, they know. <laughs> yeah, were those his words? <laughs> yeah, and, and Xavier's face just kind of like, you know, dropped. Yeah. And then we eventually turned and waited for him. And I chased Terrence Newman out the door. Yep. And Terrence was like, I don't, I quoted him at the bottom of the story, and he just said, like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that was like the only Yeah, thing because I, I was – I think I was, I was in the locker room. I was still working at ESPN at the time and I was you know, having to do the one man band thing. So I always had to make the decision about, do I go to the locker room or do I go to the press conference? And I think most of us went to the locker room and you were one of the only ones in the press conference. So you came in like with all this, like, Holy crap, yeah. this just happened <laughs> sort of thing. And I think you knew more about it than the rest of us did because you had been in the press conference with Zimmer and had asked the question. So and you came in like, we got to find out what's going on. I'm like, wait, what happened? So yeah, that was a, uh, that was an interesting day. It was, it was. Um, all right. Let's talk about 2022 and the Minnesota Vikings search for general manager and head coach. They have interviewed six candidates for GM as of Wednesday. 
They just interviewed their second candidate for head coach Wednesday morning and Dan Quinn. Those searches, as Mark Wolf said, are going to run uh, alongside each other. However, the general manager is going to be hired first and decide, help decide who's going to be the 10th head coach in franchise history. Uh, I'm curious to get your guys' thoughts on what stands out to you about this GM list, because that's the first person they're going to decide. That's going to be the top of the organization, their football operations, uh, their new hierarchy of football operations. So, uh, Ben, if we go through the list, uh, it's, it's, I think you kind of described it in your story, your first story about the group as being young and diverse. Yeah. Um, it seems to be a, a good place to start. Yeah, it's certainly quite a bit different than what we've seen from the Vikings in the past. I believe um, five of the eight candidates are, um, well, four are minorities, and one, Catherine Raich, made history as the first woman to interview for a GM job. So certainly from a diversity perspective, quite a bit different than where they've been in the past. And I think Monty Austin Ford from the Titans uh, is the oldest in the group in his early 40s, I believe. So, yeah, this is this is going to have a different feel if this is, in fact, the entire list. And we have every reason to think at this point that it is, um, you know, that, that it's kind of these eight that they're looking fairly seriously at. I, I, there could be another candidate that pops up, I suppose. I don't know that, but um, it's always possible that someone else could come into the mix. But I, I think these eight are the eight that, and if I'm looking at it right now, I'm guessing that the GM comes from this list. So um, it is a different look and a different uh, approach. I think in a lot of ways, a guy's like a guy like uh, Quisi Adolfo Mensah from the Browns has a very different background than what we've seen from the Vikings in the past. Comes from Wall Street, you know, comes from very much an analytics background. You know, the, the sort of GM candidate we almost see as being commonplace now in baseball. That has not really been that big of a thing yet in football. The Browns have probably gone to more of those types of candidates than just about anybody else in terms of kind of bringing an analytics side of things to the job. But if he were to get the job, you'd be in a pretty different spot than you've been in the past. The Vikings were trying to use more analytics and certainly have incorporated into more of their processes over the last few years. But Rick Spielman was still very much from a scouting background and you've seen a lot of GM candidates still come from that type of a, a, uh, an upbringing. So if it's somebody like him, it would be quite a bit different and quite interesting to see how that affects a lot of their decisions. Yeah, Adolfo Mensa, who's already got one interview virtually with the Vikings, traded energy derivatives and yeah. ended his Wall Street career as a uh, portfolio manager. Uh, before getting his first job with the Niners in 2013. And then they've just got a wide variety um, of people they're talking to. Mike, does anything stand out to you about this group? You've got Austin Ford, who's one of us, as Ben mentioned. He's from mm -hmm. Laverne. Um, and he's probably the more traditional candidate, 43, as a traditional scouting background and was a former Patriots scout. So if you're looking for that kind of, um, I don't know, similar kind of candidate. but Football more, guy. More, yeah, football guy. I guess that's, thank you. That's the term I was looking for football guy what yeah. do you think Mike I, I think Ben's right it feels like a pretty wide-ranging pool of candidates and anytime there's a GM search I think we know less about these people or kind of what they would probably bring to the table than the coaching pool just because we've seen a lot of the head coaches that they intend or have already interviewed um, you know we've seen them work in more of a you know spotlight kind of stage the GM is a little bit more behind the scenes and a lot of these people relatively unknown. I think Ben's point that 
I was going to bring up too, though, is just how how whatever hire they make will be. It will be fascinating to see how that influences the direction they want to go. And obviously, I think we'll probably get into some, you know, Kirk Cousins questions with the mailbag. But you know, they've got some big roster decisions, and I don't know if I don't know if the the hire they make will signal to us what they intend to do. But certainly that uh, certainly whoever they pick um, will, it, you know, depending on how they come at this, will have a much different viewpoint on what this roster needs, what has to happen here in order for this team to be ultimately successful. I mean, if you hire traditional like football guy, like you said, you know, they might come in and look at the core of pretty good players that are still here and say, okay, we got a lot of talent. We can, you know, build around them with the draft a little bit. We can be pretty good right away. You hire someone more from an analytics bent, they might say, how oh, we got to retool this quite a bit because this is, you know, we're looking at these players who are like on the wrong side of 28, 29, 30. They might look at the roster in a much different qualitative, quantitative way. So that part of it will be fascinating to see like what style of person they wind up with and how that influences how they're going to ultimately judge, you know, the roster going forward. There, there are a couple of places where the Vikings over the last few years in, in one particular spot, even longer than the last few years have been built very differently than the rest of the league running back and linebackers. They have spent a lot of money on running backs, especially. And some of that goes back to Adrian Peterson being just a unique case in a lot of ways, still the last non quarterback to win the MVP award. I think that will continue to be the case uh, this year, looking like it's probably a, a two person race between Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. Uh, Adrian will still be the last non quarterback to win that thing back in 2012. So they have spent a fair amount of money on that position and have, and have valued it in the way that they build their roster and the way they run their offense differently than a lot of the league. They've also done it with two linebackers in the sense that neither of them rush the passer, but they pay big money, have paid big money for Eric Hendricks and Anthony Barr and still will be paying big money for Anthony Barr this year, even though he's probably not going to be on the roster. He's got almost $10 million of dead money on this year's cap. So there are some ways that if it changes, somebody could come and look at this roster and say, we are not efficient in the modern sense of the word in a few spots. And maybe they'd look at it as these are talented players. Let's keep them. But maybe they look at the positional value and say, we got to make some big changes here. Yeah, it is interesting. Some of the decisions that Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer had to, or did make, um, in the nature of saving their own skin in 2021 and how that can kind of affect moving forward. Cause one of the questions we had in the mailbag was about playing, um, players in the, in the season finale that you could have got good looks at. And it's like, there's no way Mike Zimmer gave any care in the world, knowing going into that game that he was not going to be retained, that he wasn't going to do anything in the way of long-term vision for that franchise. <laughs> and it absolutely cost the team some opportunities there. And, and the, the GM's, situation as well. Cause you mentioned bar being on the books like that for next year. Um, that's not something I think you would have seen under this regime or old regime, you know, four or five years prior. It was, that was, uh, that seemed like a panic move to try to, you know, try to really press to win. Yeah. There were a lot of those. I mean, yeah. you know, some of the veterans, they signed to one year deals, you know, rather than trying to play young guys. And, and, you know, if you thought you were secure, you would maybe try to play it out and give, Cameron Dantzler a year to develop and see what you have there a little bit more than they did. You probably don't sign a guy like Patrick Peterson. I mean, a lot of those moves were made 
because they knew they needed to win to keep the jobs. And, you know, some of those bills will come due both in the sense of cap space they didn't roll over or money that they literally pushed into the future to sign guys like that. Yeah, Mike, I want to ask you uh, regarding the GM you were talking about, just fascinating what direction they could go and how that could impact these some of these decisions. What among Spielman's kind of tendencies or how this organization has been run for so long? Because this will be the first draft in which Spielman, or first free agency, in which Spielman won't be a part of the front office in quite a while. Um, what about that or what trend do you want to see change? Like, What is something that he's consistently done or that they've done under him? Because I think of things, some of his hallmark things, obviously, you like to see them not miss on the quarterback position. That's That'd be great. Um, but the trading on draft day, the seventh round pick accruing, the um, value and quantity over quality, it would seem, in the draft, um, slow playing free agency. Like There's just a lot of different hallmarks of what they've done, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on um, what you're hoping to see change. Yeah, I think the biggest thing would be, and it's not like he didn't have any draft successes, but you, you already mentioned it, the, the constant trading back, uh, accumulating picks, which, you know, by all accounts, probably even at the end frustrated Mike Zimmer. Um, he's not, you know, he's not a fan, but he was certainly wasn't a fan of that strategy. Um, as you know, as they traded back again in 2021, you know, probably ended up with the player they might have taken at 14 anyway with Christian Derisaw, but it got a little dicey and they probably could have taken you know, an edge rusher who could have maybe helped them this year, some some sort of defensive lineman who might have made a defensive difference this year. And, you know, was that value there, you know, at offensive tackle greater, you know, than what they needed on defense? I don't know. It, they certainly needed a franchise tackle. Derisaw, when he got healthy, seemed like he's got some potential. So it's not like they whiffed on that pick, but getting the coach and the GM on the same page a little bit in that regard. And, you know, going, you know, it's not like he never, swung big like early in his tenure he was obsessed with first round picks he was obsessed with trading back up into the first round to get that fifth year option and things like that so his his philosophy was kind of a mixed bag on draft day but maybe a little more focused approach with here are the guys we really want here are the guys we really think that can play let's just go get them and see if they can play yeah i'm I'm interested i could hear actually people screaming from wherever they are listening to this podcast about the offensive line. That's probably the one thing in terms of just not being able to figure out certain position groups. It wasn't just Mike screaming. This line, I'm right? always screaming about that. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't bring that up. Well, but it, but it hasn't been for lack of investment lately. It's just been, they've, you know, they've been, and again, you know, maybe more of those picks were, were okay than others. I think Ezra Cleveland made a step this year. It looks like O'Neal's pretty good. Maybe Derisaw's pretty good. They just waited too long. I mean, if they had started this, they started valuing offensive line in the draft in 2015 instead of 2018. They might be in a different spot right now. All right, Ben, I'm curious to get your thoughts as well on the head coaching searches and what you've heard there, because you've reported they've got eight candidates total that we know of. Yep. You, you said that you think the GM is going to come from that GM candidate list. Are you as confident about that with the head coaching list? Um, I'm not quite as confident, but I, I do think there's a fairly good chance of it. I mean, the, the difference with the head coaches is that there are other candidates that they don't have to necessarily uh, request interviews with. So it could be that the first time that we hear about a candidate, maybe it's a college coach or maybe it's a, a current um, out of work NFL, former NFL coach, they don't have to request 
to talk to those coaches. They can just do it anytime. Um, Matt Campbell's name came up because he was in the Twin Cities. I heard that that was not related to Vikings job. It sounded like Ken A. Wongu uh, had a ticket to get him into the game. So it sounded like it was that simple. Um, they have not called about Doug Peterson yet, which is a bit of a surprise given sort of uh, what he would seem to bring to the table. And, and obviously a guy that has a Super Bowl ring, a guy that has worked with young quarterbacks, a guy that I think would bring some of the approach to that job that they've talked about wanting to have. It's a little surprising that they haven't called him yet. Um, and they're getting probably a little late in the game, frankly, to do that. But so, I mean, there, there could be a guy like that that emerges yet. And there could be a guy that is um, still out there waiting, but yeah, I, I think it's possible that a guy like Todd Bowles or a guy like, um, you know, possibly even Jonathan Gannon or I mean, Dan Quinn, I think they have interest in. They talked to Dan Quinn and Todd Bowles. Todd Bowles was probably the no, was the runner-up last time to Mike Zimmer and then ended up taking the Jets job. But it sounds like I wouldn't get so hung up on, on what I've heard on this idea of has to be a defensive guy or has to be an offensive guy. I think it is very much about who can we get to do things in a way that is a little bit different than what we've done it before in terms of how we connect with players and, and just how we build the roster. So Raheem Morris is the most recent name to be added to that list. And he's unique for Andrew, I think for reasons that you outlined in the paper today, um, I, he could be a very serious candidate as well. I, I think uh, it's the first time he's interviewed in this cycle, but um, certainly could be a guy that, that gets a long look. Yeah. There's a, a, think strong link between a lot of these different guys in terms of being well-regarded communicators, leaders of men, um, you know, along with the X's and O's and the football IQ and all that stuff. But D'Amico Ryans, you read a lot of strong stuff about him, the 49ers defensive coordinator. You brought up Morris, Bowles, the same thing. Um, Jonathan Gannon, the Vikings know well, the Eagles defensive coordinator. He was the assistant defensive backs coach here for four years the first four years under Zimmer. I'm surprised that you bring up Doug Peterson not getting a call yet. I'm surprised that we haven't seen these names emerge either. Eric Bieniemy, Brian Dabble, uh, Byron Leftwich, the Bucks offensive coordinator. Um, but those are probably the three. Just basically three offensive guys that you would assume come from good offenses and you would think are worth talking to. Um, so, Ben, why do you think – I guess it doesn't matter what we, why we think, but I guess I'm just curious yeah. to get your assumption. When you look at this list of eight candidates, um, it seems odd to me that those three aren't part of it. Yeah. And, and they have not called about Dable yet. Um, I know that as of this afternoon and as of yesterday, they had not called about the enemy. So and that that's an interesting one in the sense that you have people in the building that know him from his time in Minnesota as the running backs coach. So yeah, it, it's a little bit strange to me that they haven't called about any of those three. I, I guess it tells you, um, you know, that like we say, that this thing of we have to have the next hot offensive coach is not how they're going about it. But I don't know enough to have a, a perfect idea of why they would look at those three and say they're not as um, – much of what we're looking for as the other eight on the list. And, and who knows, we could still end up in a spot where those guys get a long look. Maybe one of them ends up in the mix, but um, 
at least in the in the Peterson Dable be enemy sense of things. I don't know as much about Leftwich there yet, but um, yeah, it's a little surprising to me that those four are not part of the mix. And maybe it's a reminder that the the lists that get tossed around of of who the hot candidates are or who they should be aren't always prescriptive for how teams go about this. Long memory on 12th man in the huddle. Well, I was, I was going to say, I mean, the, uh, the, did you order the Tahi, uh, <laughs> the code, the, the Tahi code red, I guess, uh, <laughs> would I think have to come up in an interview, wouldn't it? It would, it would indeed. He was the running backs coach back in 2009. So That's anyway, been I, the theory, right. Is that he sent Tahi out of the field. He's the position coach. I, I don't know. I don't know where the blame lies in that, but, uh, that game might have turned out a little bit differently had that not happened. They might not have needed any additional yardage to attempt a field goal to go to the Super Bowl, but that's all neither here nor there. I'm, I was going to say, I'm, for some reason, I'm suddenly interested in Raheem Morris, and I didn't know that I would be until I started just looking at his resume a little more. He kind of, kind of fits into that kind of sweet spot of, you know, he's, he's done this before his, his job at the Buccaneers did not go well, but he was like 32 when he got that job. Like, I don't think he was probably ready for that. He did have a 10 win season with a team that had no business winning 10 games. He's a, you know, he had a reputation for being overly a player's coach, probably hopefully would learn from that and, you know, came up as a defensive coach, but then was an offensive assistant for, you know, four or five years with Atlanta, you know, it was the wide receivers wide receivers coach, passing game coach, you know, so some experience on both sides of the ball. He's still only 45. I don't know. He kind of, he kind of fits into a lot of what they're looking for. I guess it would just be a question of how he interviews and kind of what, you know, what people saying about him. But I saw a pretty flattering quote from one of his current, as a Jalen Ramsey, I think on Twitter was yeah. talking about how, how much he respects, what he's done and just in that one year with the Rams. So it's an intriguing name to me. It's, it's a list that's kind of all over the map though. Yeah, Raheem Morris um, too was credited. I remember reading something about him and a game from December, 2020, where before the chiefs lost the super bowl um, last year to the bucks, they were slowed by Raheem Morris's Falcons in a 17 to 14 win. And this is after they had been on fire, like scoring or, you know, 450, 500 yards a game. Yep. Anyway, so he's got the credentials as a, as a coach. He's well-regarded among players. He is an interesting candidate for sure. And somebody that the Vikings jumped on the day after uh, his defense stifled the Cardinals and Cliff Kingsbury in that playoff game on Monday night. Um, so he's that eighth candidate for head coach. And we'll certainly have all the updates there at startribune.com as those march along. Um Let's talk quick about the playoffs. I mentioned before we get to the mailbag, I've mentioned on the last podcast, I think that uh, this is just going to be Bucks Chiefs again in the Super Bowl. And I'm curious, somebody tell me why I'm wrong or am I not wrong? I wouldn't bet against that. Um, I mean, unless you think that Tampa has lost enough weapons that it would be hard for them to go into Green Bay again. I'm not convinced that they'd have to go into Green Bay. I, I don't think the 49ers are a great matchup for the Packers just in terms of how they're going to run the ball. Evo Samuel. I mean, if, if Jimmy Garoppolo is as banged up as he sounds like he is, maybe that's a different story. The Packers are getting a lot of guys back, but it's hard to know quite what that will look like. And I, I think the 49ers are going to try to <laughs> pound the ball in that cold weather and keep Aaron Rodgers off the field. So um, I, 
I don't know that I would bet against Tampa and Kansas City again. Um, I, I certainly think if uh, if it's Tampa Green Bay again, I don't know why they'd have any reason to think they can't go in there and win, given the fact they did it last year. It'll be a full crowd this time, but uh, yeah, it, I I think it's certainly possible it's those two teams once again. Yeah, Mike, am I wrong? And, and also, I'll throw in there. I think the all chaos matchup is Titans Niners. <laughs> that would be a chaos Niners. matchup. About a two hour, two and a half hour game. <laughs> yeah, right. It would be just a be old school. Like send this game back to 1982, um, and let's uh, let's let it rip. Even 1960. Kyle, <laughs> this is Roger. Stop running the ball. We have more commercials. We need to get on TV. Seriously, I I do feel like the 49ers have a little bit of that feel of you know the proverbial team you don't want to play right now um so i think that will be an interesting matchup at at lambeau um i think green bay probably still wins that game but i think it's it it could be it could be a test that they they weren't uh, they would not love to uh, to have to get into cuz they they played it, they played earlier in the year and wasn't it fairly close in that game too rodgers had to bail them out it was. I think that was the night of the like. How can you not be romantic about football? It was like a Sunday night game. I think. Um, yeah, Rogers had to come uh, screaming back with one of those forty seconds to go kick a field goal kind of drives. Right. So I mean, I think I think it's a pretty interesting NFC remaining field. I think the Rams are kind of rediscovering what they were early in this season. I wouldn't. Frankly, I don't think it's out of the question that they beat Tampa Bay this weekend too. So it's, you know, Buffalo suddenly looks like the team we thought Buffalo was for a while. It's, it's, you know, aside from, you know, I, I don't, even though Tennessee has a lot of things going for it, I don't know if that holds up over the course of two games against really good teams, but I mean, honestly, it doesn't feel like any of these teams are would, it doesn't feel like any of these teams you'd feel like we're, complete shocks to make it all the way at this point yeah joe burrow might be our only hope of it not being mahomes burrow and rogers those those are the two those are our hopes of it not being mahomes brady i think um because you know brady's game than last year i mean it was uh not much of not much of a super bowl last year other than pat mahomes throwing uh awesomely epic incomplete passes at the end You know, though, that Brady's going to find a way. He's going to just use that Alex Guerrero medicine to revive Gronk, like from the ashes. It'll be like a phoenix, you know, right? right before yeah, I, I wouldn't. I mean, we've all done it forever, but the, the betting against Brady is generally not a great idea. So I, I certainly, I almost feel better about Tampa coming out of the NFC than I would Kansas City. I, Kansas City's been up and down enough that if somebody got hot, against that off, I guess, a defense, I could see it. But, yeah, Buffalo is a little hard to trust with – is Josh Allen going to be consistent enough? I, I think uh, if it's Tennessee, it's possible Derrick Henry gets healthy. Maybe that makes the difference. Yeah, I think Kansas City's got a tougher road, at least when you look at the, the quarterbacks and just the offenses. Because, Ben, you seem a lot more down on the Packers against the Niners than I do. I, I don't trust Jimmy Garoppolo. I think Jimmy Garoppolo on the road, if you get him in a yeah. single third down, it seems like a win for me. Well, yeah, and I mean, if he's that banged up, and and it's supposed to be cold, I think. So, yeah, if he's that banged up, then maybe that makes the difference. But yeah, I just I I think the way the Packers' run defense has looked at times this year, um, that matchup, I just I think the 49ers have a lot of pieces that could give the Packers trouble, and and maybe it's a different story 
if they get all these guys back. I mean, it's hard to know what that defense is because we just we have not seen them this stocked with their talent since probably the beginning of the season, really. So, um, yeah, I, I just I think it's a tough match. I think teams that can come in there and run the ball, that front seven has had trouble at times stopping the run. And I think uh, the, both the 49ers and Bucks have the, the pieces to take advantage of that. And Rodgers is just going to boycott the Super Bowl anyway, right? Didn't I read that somewhere? What was that? Uh, that was Boomer, yeah. He, and it sounds like they, they might have gotten pranked by that. but uh, <laughs> I would tend to think so. That does yeah, not that, make any sense at all. That's one of those that – I can't remember if we talked about this. or I, I think it, the day it happened, I think I was on with Dan Barrero, and I think I said this at the time. But those are the types of things that when you're somebody that is trying to do this in a way that – you vet things and make sure that what you have, what you understand it is, is right before you put it out there. Um, to do that on live radio without, you know, checking it out a little more isn't a good look for anybody that's involved in the process of trying to gather news and disseminate it to the public. It even goes down to the dumbest things. I remember there was one week where in regular season where um, Brian Baldinger, I think he was breaking down Vikings film and he decides to put out there this clip of Danny Isadora, who at the time was like a third string guard. I think it was a Danny Isadora. And so he thinks because the Vikings had an injury at center, he probably pulled up a depth chart online that was inaccurate. And it probably had Danny Isadora listed as the backup center. So he tweets an evaluation of Danny Isadora. Well, that turned into a bunch of people locally putting on their websites, report Danny Isadora going to start at center for the Vikings on Sunday. And I just remember being like, what are we doing? Like it's, it's people even say things inadvertently and it just kind of, that lie will just kind of get twisted and transformed and just shot into the atmosphere. <laughs> it's amazing. Anyway. All right. That's my rant. I'll save that for the other podcast. Let's start the mailbag. Scott has a good one. And Mike, I want to get your thoughts on this. It says, how drastically different would the view of how quickly the roster can be rebuilt to a contender be if the Eagles had taken Justin Jefferson? He says, I think one lucky moment made a huge difference in how we're looking at this roster and how it can be retooled. Yeah, I think there's it would be quite a bit different because I think if you're talking about the centerpiece of any kind of, you know, retooling of, of this team, you're, Justin Jefferson is probably the front and center in that, you know, like a guy who's coming off a great rookie season and even better second year was he got like 3000 yards already in two seasons. Um, you know, almost set the, uh, single game, the single season, uh, receiving record for the Vikings. Oh, so close. If only, um, they had thrown in the ball one more time in that last game or somewhere along the line. But yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it's like, I don't know if it'll be the difference between someone taking the job or not, but it certainly makes the job more attractive when you have a 20, 20, 22, 22 year old to build around as a, you know, clear bona fide number one receiver, you know, on a team where a lot of your other better players are at or approaching 30. Um, so, you know, having someone like that certainly makes a difference. I think. Yeah, Ben, it's not far off to Rogers, but going digs to Jefferson is a pretty good, pretty good move for the offense. Yeah. Yeah. That, that had, has worked out quite well. I mean, obviously Justin Jefferson is, I think the guy that looking at the Vikings roster, you feel most excited about going forward. And, and the guy that you probably most want to build around the fact that he's only 22, the fact that he is doing the things that he's done in the first two years in the league, 
you would say this guy has a chance to be a cornerstone for your franchise for the next seven, eight years. And if it's Jalen Rieger or whoever else it would have been for the Vikings at that spot, if Justin Jefferson's in Philadelphia, I, I think you'd look at it quite a bit differently because I don't look at the roster at the moment and say that there's a lot of pieces that you build around. I mean, there's been a lot of talk around the league about this job being attractive because of the talent on the roster. But a lot of that talent is 28, 29, 30 years old. Eric Hendricks, Harrison Smith, obviously is older than that. Daniel Hunter will be 28 in the, at the end of October. Um, you like certainly Justin Jefferson. Dalvin Cook is still on the right side of uh, 27 for a running back, but you're not probably looking at a ton more time there in terms of just being able to keep up that kind of a workload before he becomes more of a concern of breaking down. So yeah, Justin Jefferson's the guy that I think you look at the roster and say, this is the reason we're most excited about the talent. And I think it'd it'd look a lot different if he's not here. Yeah. That's going to be a a new quarterback's best friend. Um, If it's whoever, whoever the guy is after Kirk cousins, if that's 2022 or 2023 or beyond. Um, Got another question here from Run Bayou. He wants to know who are the most likely cap casualties this offseason? So when you look at the veteran contracts, obviously we don't even know who the GM is who would be making this decision. So that plays a big part in it. But you have a fresh set of eyes that are not tied to these contracts necessarily, um, other than the dead money that they leave. So, Ben, who do you think are the most likely cap casualties? And I guess I would throw out there. Um, Michael Pierce might be somebody if a fresh set of eyes walks in might say, you know, we're going to do things a little differently. I think that contract seems like it's cuttable with how it's structured. Yeah, it is. Um, you would save, um, about six and a half million dollars of cap space. If you did it early in the year, you'd only take $4 million of dead money for that one. Um, yeah. So I certainly put him on the list more so than Dalvin Tomlinson. That's not uh, cuttable, at least as a way in the way it's currently structured. I mean, somebody could look at Harrison Smith, I suppose, and say I mean, you, you take on like $7.6 million of dead money. Um, it's like five, eight of savings. But if you do the June 1st designation for Harrison Smith, there's almost no cost. And then you could push it out and have a lot of that dead money hit in 2023. It would basically be a $2 million hit this year. So he would be a guy that I think would get a look. I don't know that the way to solve these problems is going to be cuts. And there are two contracts that I look at when I say that. Uh, number one, of course, is Kirk Cousins with a $45 million cap hit this year. I've always sort of thought that's a trigger for the sides to get back to the bargaining table. Now, the people he's bargaining with, the people Mike McCartney, his agent, would be bargaining, bargaining with are different than the people that signed that contract. So if you wanted to do it, um, you'd have to figure out the relationship between Cousins, McCartney, and the new people. But if you either do a contract extension, or I think it's probably more likely that you trade him, then you clear a lot of money. I mean, those are your two cap-saving avenues with Cousins, is extend or trade. And I think either one of those is certainly a viable option and the other guy is Daniil Hunter. We talk about the cap issues being a big problem because, in part, Daniil Hunter has a $26 million cap number. Well, there's an $18 million roster bonus that's part of that that was also put there as a trigger 
to try to get everybody back to the bargaining table when he was upset with his contract. That was a concession for the Vikings to say, we're either going to pay you a lot of money or we're going to come back and get a new deal worked out. And I certainly think the Vikings preference would be to do a new deal. So if you play with those two, you have some room that you can create with both of those contracts. You're still going to probably have to do a couple things. Could be Pierce. Um, Adam Thielen's will come up. I don't think Adam Thielen's gone. I think he maybe restructure Adam Thielen, but um, I think a lot of what they need to do can be dealt with with Cousins and Hunter. Yeah, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, Cousins and Hunter, the two big ones. I mean, they combined for $71 million on next year's salary cap. That's got to be close to a third of the cap combined. Yeah, looking at, you know, looking at, uh, the cap numbers. Yeah. That's about 34% of the cap next season. That's almost exactly a third. You've got to do something there. Um, if I guess the question becomes, if you can't trade cousins, what's the appetite for restructuring him? Cause then it's, you know, adding years and you're kind of adding commitment to him and that's expensive. And what are the new bosses think? So I think a lot of what happens with cousins might dictate, what happens with Hunter? And if you don't feel like you can do anything with Cousins that you want to, you could. I could imagine Daniil Hunter just being unfortunately cut because he's only played six games the last two years combined, something like that. Am I am I getting the right number there? Something not not very big. He missed all of 2020. I can't remember how many games he played this year, but you could look at that and say, as great as he is when he's healthy, that's a lot of money. Um, we're going to start over with the first round pick on the defensive line and, and see if we can uh, start over there. Wouldn't you rather pair the first round pick with Daniel? Yeah, I would probably, but what, I mean, if, if you're, if you come up against it with Kirk cousins, what are you going to do at a certain point? I don't know. I, I could just, I could just imagine, I could just imagine Hunter being a surprise cut before that roster bonus comes due in March. <sighs> see, okay. Yeah. I would say that is a tricky one because on one hand he is, a ridiculous talent when he's healthy on the other. Yeah. He's played six games in the last two years. So leverage wise, he's not coming into this in a great spot that, I mean, that is going to be one where if the relationship between the organization and Hunter is in a spot where he wants to work something out, then maybe you do it. And that is going to be a big question. I think going forward here, I got a big, I got a hot take though. I think the one, the, the biggest favor that Rob Brzezinski and Rick Spielman. Now Rob is obviously still there, part of the internal search team that's interviewing candidates for, for the new GM. But the biggest favor they did, the old regime did for this one, is get Daniel under that contract and back with that restructure because Ben, couldn't they afford to take on both of those guys by doing other things, finding ways to feel the team that both being cousins and hunter? Yeah, or yeah. or you trade cousins as we've got a lot of questions about as well, and offload thirty five million in salary, and then that's your entire answer right there. Yes, trading trading cousins is the simplest thing to do here. Absolutely, I just say, what if they can't? Yeah, I don't if, think you're offloading thirty five million either if you trade cousins. I I think you're probably eating ten, fifteen more of that. I mean, it still solves a lot of your problems, but. It won't. I, I don't think you're going to get somebody to say we will take on the entire $35 million base salary if we're taking on Cousins for one year. And and maybe they work on an extension, but I think it would probably be something where the Vikings, what you the way you do it is 
basically what the Jaguars did with Ngakwe, where you give him a signing bonus, you convert some of this into a signing bonus, so then that money stays on your cap, and you eat of the forty-five million, say you eat twenty. It's still a savings for you. Um, it helps somebody else be more interested in him. And maybe it gets you a draft pick back as well. Kind of like what the uh, the Rams did with Jared Goff. That's interesting. So yeah, if you're if you're viewing Lions the draft, Jared Goff. I always mess that up. If you're viewing the draft capital as more important than the the money on the books, you might as well just eat the money and save yeah. on the potential cost of moving him. And uh, that's a price for a draft pick, I guess. But well, and the most fascinating question is like, what is his trade value? And like, where, what, what does everybody else think of him? Because there's going to be a lot of quarterback needy teams this offseason. You can think of like Denver, potentially Cleveland, Pittsburgh, like teams that are, you know, maybe a quarterback away from not being in the Super Bowl, but being a lot better than they were this year. Like, can they talk someone? They were what the Vikings did in 2018. Exactly. Like, can you talk someone into that with Kirk Cousins and, you know, can you say, you know, we tried it here, it didn't work, but this wasn't the right fit. It never was the right, you know, he never had the same offensive coordinator two years in a row. Like, what, what do you think? I mean, I think he's tradable, but what, to, to what extent is that eating a contract versus someone genuinely wanting him? Now, the, the problem is with Kirk's market is there's not necessarily a lack of kind of bridge options. Kirk just might be the best one of them. There's Jameis Winston. You've got Gardner Minshew who's probably available via trade. Your guy. Ted, my guy. You got Teddy Bridgewater, um, everybody's guy. Very much a bridge quarterback. <laughs> You've got uh, who else is going to be available? Ryan Fitzpatrick is probably still going to be doing it. Or did He's he like hang, 40. Did he hang it up? He's going to come here if Cousins goes, by the way. That's your one-year bridge here. If there Cousins you go. Goes. That'd be fun. Uh, who else? Is Keenum out there? Case, yeah. yeah, I'm sure Case Keenum will still be out there. So, I mean, there's, there's at least a few options floating around that – it's not like the Vikings are holding the only chip that, you know, and I feel like Kirk's value, even though his numbers are great, I feel like his value is not what it was in 2018, where he was viewed as like, ah, if you just put him around a bunch of talent, he'll be a great guy. And then you kind of see if you do, the teams are going to be very up and down or, or just mediocre at times on offense. Um, anyway, so let's move on in the mailbag. We've got another question, unless you guys have one you want to get to right now. Um, I got one here from, Someone who asked, the Vikings defense gave up many game-winning scores and they're 11th in payroll. Do you see major changes with the heavy payroll and the lack of success? So just in general, do we see major changes on the defensive side? And I would say obviously yes because of the number of free agents. We've gone through them before, but to do it again, they're Barr, Richardson, Patrick Peterson, Xavier Woods, Mackenzie Alexander, Nick Vigil, um, Sheldon Richardson. I don't know if I mentioned him. Um so there are a lot of them. So yes, I think it's going to be very different. The scheme is going to be probably different depending on who takes over, and that's going to be a major change. Um, I remember, I think one of the coolest things at the end there is seeing Barr come back with Kendrick's Ben because we got to see those two guys playing together in what is really going to be the lasting image of, of Zimmer's Vikings teams, which is those two guys standing over center. I think that kind of defense, yep. it's not just going to be who's wearing the, the uniforms, but it's going to be how they're playing as well that's going to change. Well, and the, the other thing to consider is, is the scheme going to be the same? Would somebody come in here and look at what is left and say, let's make this a 3-4? The big question there would be Daniil Hunter. Do you feel like he could stand up? Can he drop into coverage? I, I don't know that that's necessarily when you, where you want to go with him. Maybe you do kind of a – make him kind of an elephant where you 
play him in a little bit of a hybrid. Sometimes he's standing up, sometimes he's got his hand in the ground. Um, but if you kept Tomlinson and Pierce, I mean, both of those guys would fit, or at least one of them is a nose tackle on a 3-4, and maybe you figure out some other things around those guys. Um, you could have somebody that comes in here saying, I prefer to play a 3-4. And a lot of teams have gone this way in the last few years, and certainly in the last probably 15 years in the NFL. So um, I, I think a defensive overhaul, I'm not saying bank on it, but I think there's a very good chance that you're looking at that sort of thing, given the number of free agents and given the fact that the the thing that kept them tethered to the scheme that they had was Mike Zimmer. And now anything I think is on the table. What do you think, Mike? Daniel Hunter is an elephant? I mean, maybe. I think he's a great player. I just, you know, you, you do wonder at a certain point, um, you know, tying yourself long-term to someone with injury problems, but that could just be, you know, bad luck um, to a certain degree too. And plenty of players have one, you know, major stretch of their career where they're hurt and then the rest of it, they're fine. So it, it might be worth it there. I'm interested in the idea of a of a scheme change. I don't know if scheme was necessarily so much their problem or, you know, with three, four versus four, three, but they're gonna have to do something because, you know, I think as we've talked about that, the identity of this team kind of feels like it will shift to offense in 2022, but you can't just be offense. You, you've got to figure out something. And this year's team was what, like 24th in points last year's team was like 29, something like that. They really fell off to the point where, you know, you'd still, Zimmer's still expecting them and trusting them to get that one big stop at the end of the game. And they just weren't doing it because they just didn't have either the bodies or whatever it was needed to it, to get it done. All right. We've got some more questions. What do you guys got? Got one from uh, chicken fingers. Yeah. I got the chicken fingers one. Do you guys, uh, you guys want to field that one? Let me, let me pull it up. I got to find it for a second. He asked, do the Wilfs still lean on Bill Parcells opinion? as much as people say they do, or is that a remnant of the past? Um, the Zimmer thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, the Par- I mean, it was the Wilfs in some ways. I mean, I think the Parcells evaluation of Zimmer helped. I mean, the Wilfs are big Giants fans. So, I mean, that's kind of where some of that comes from. I, I don't, I think that got a little overplayed in terms of what led them to Zimmer. Um, would they still call him? I mean, if it's Todd Bowles, Todd Bowles, the Parcells guy. So um, I would think there'd be a call to Parcells to uh, get his take on Todd Bowles. But Bill Parcells is not playing the Bill Polian role that Bill Polian's playing in Chicago where he's godfather over this search. (laughs) Uh, Big tuna. Um, All right. Got any more questions here? Uh, Oh, go ahead, Ben. You got one? If you got one, go ahead. I was just going to say – this was a question about Cousins that was more scheme-related, too. Cousins clearly thrives on the play-action style that's really central to the Kubiak-Shanahan scheme. How would Cousins fit scheme-wise if the Vikings hire a head coach or offensive coordinator, I suppose, from the Andy Reid tree? Did we run that sort of offense in the Filippo season? And it just gets to the question, too, of whether whatever hire they're going to make is a signal to some of what the personnel decisions are going to be to come or how how certain pieces of the existing roster fit into what the new people might want to do. Yeah. That's a really interesting question because Kirk has talked about, and Ben, you know, better than anybody, his 
comfort in this scheme and this system. And now it's going to be, if he's here or anywhere, a new play caller and is here and and potentially a new system. But um, to me, the system wasn't necessarily the the problem. We see the system work in the NFL, whether it works in Los Angeles, it works in San Francisco, it works in, in places. It's just certain disciples of it. Don't run it in a very efficient way sometimes. And we saw that with Clint Kubiak this year. So Ben, what do you think about that question? Well, yeah, I mean, I think the point you just made is a good one. I mean, this this scheme has become probably in some ways what the Doug Peterson, uh, Andy Reid, John Filippo, whatever, RPO heavy, straight to the West Coast offense. That was the thing probably four or five years ago. It has become McVay, Shanahan, um, LaFleur, all running types of these things. And th- those are three of the last four teams playing in the NFC once again. I, I mean, I think last year it would have been LaFleur, uh, McVay, and then who the heck did the uh, the Buccaneers play in the uh, in the second round? Division round? Um, yeah. uh, they, they went through Taylor Heineke's Washington football team. And the first I, round. I believe they went through the Saints. Saints. Yes. Okay, so it was, it was two of those four in uh, – in the, in the final four of the NFC last year and three of the four this year. So that is still a very trendy scheme. It still fits Dalvin Cook very well. I mean, you could see somebody come in and try to um, run that type of thing again. I Yeah, Cousins has been very comfortable in it. I, I think that the question I would have as far as the quarterback goes going forward, the next guy has to be able to move. I, I think yes. anybody you go get, has to be somebody that can make some plays on their own. I just, I don't think you're going to see a guy come in again that is this much of a pocket quarterback that can't create some things with his feet. I don't know if that's this year, a year or two down the road. I just think that's going to become a priority. I heard Kirk was working off, uh, or working to get better playing off schedule, though. You know, we're going to, we're going to work on that. We're going to he has uh, he has brought that up a time or two, yes. <laughs> yeah, there's just some things that I'm sure if you get Kirk at an honest moment, he would probably admit, you know, I'm not, I'm not Michael Vick. I'm just not. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, unless we have any other questions we want to get to, that could be it for this edition of the Access Vikings podcast. Mike, go ahead. I was just going to say, that's actually been one of the more disappointing things to me about Cousins in Minnesota because, you know, last two years in Washington, he actually ran for 33 first downs. That's not a lot. I'm sure a couple of them were quarterback sneaks, but, you know, he ran for 179 yards with Washington in 2017. You know, he, he's got a little bit of escapability to him in, in that case. He did it a little bit here, but he ran for eight first downs this year, like not being able to make any more plays with his feet um, was, you know, just you don't have to be you know, you don't have to be Michael Vick. If you can just be a little bit more elusive, uh, you really help your team, especially on third down. I think that really suffered on third down this year. I actually Kirk. thought he was better at it this year than he has been in the last couple of years with the Vikings. Yeah, we did see Kirk's big game in uh, Arizona where he was running around. I think he made some yeah. plays with his feet. Carolina there. had a big one too. The reason Gary Kubiak is the greatest of all time um, is a sentence I love to begin um, it, the reason he's the greatest of all time is because he called on fourth and five in Houston, a quarterback sweep with Kirk Cousins. And I went back after that game, and this would have been 2000, obviously, the year he was coordinating. So 2020. 20. Um, 
he called a quarterback sweep that worked on fourth and five with Kirk Cousins. I went back and looked at every fourth down run in Kirk Cousins' career. Never has that been done. Um, <laughs> it's always been a quarterback sneak or some kind of improvisation. It's never been a designed, hey, guess what? You're going to outrun everybody to the corner. And he did it, and it worked, and I couldn't believe the tennis. it. Tennis. It's the offseason tennis. I just couldn't believe it. Well, no, it was the matchup against the slowest linebackers in the NFL, and they knew it. And they were like, you know what? You can do this, Kirk. You can do Get it. Get into the forehand in the corner. Don't, <laughs> don't try to hit your cross-court winners on me, man. That's, oh, what, that's what helped it happen. That is why Gary Kubiak is the greatest of all time. So in lieu of a Gary Kubiak sounder, this will be the end of the Access Vikings podcast. Please check out all we of our work. We need a new sounder, don't we? We do. We do. And it, again, we need the new, the new leadership has to lead us into this new era of Vikings football. So I cannot wait until they offer us the new sound. I'm so sure whatever, whoever it is that gets the job, we need to get to say something snarky about podcasts fairly early on. It could be anything. Well, yeah, now we need to plant a question about podcasts just to get yeah. the answer. That's <laughs> you, you think Kirk should have a podcast or you think he should, I don't know, get off the podcast. <laughs> oh, that'll be great. All right. Well, please check out all of our work at startribune.com.